How many of you know what that is called? Well, that's the Lord's Prayer. No, that's the model prayer. If you want to call it the Lord's Prayer, we'll still be friends. But we are actually going to study this morning the Lord's Prayer, which is John 17. His high priestly prayer. Didn't have that read to trick you, but uh, we can't get enough of teaching about prayer. And if, if you walked in this morning and didn't know how to pray, go home and open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Keep your eyes open and pray. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given a guide after this manner. Pray like this. And just use each phrase and meditate on it and think about it and lift it up to the throne of grace and pray it for one another, pray it for your family, pray it for many others. Now this, the model of the, the, the Lord's Prayer in John 17, we are titled this, The Prayer of Jesus for the Prayer of Jesus to His Father and for His Redeemed. Uh, many people, I think rightly so, feel like when we get to John 17, we're on holy ground, much like Moses uh, at the burning bush. Uh, what an amazing wonder that Jesus allowed his disciples to listen in on this, and now this morning, for you and I to listen in and to be taught with the very words of Jesus from his prayer to the Father. Now, I'm not going to read it at this point. We're just going to go through most of the verses one at a time. So let's pray. Father, we bless you for the amazing grace that you've given to us, and we, we want to sit at your table and dine, to feed upon your word. We thank you for the master teacher, the Holy Spirit, who is present to bring application to our hearts and lives. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a prayer as you keep your Bibles open and look at John 17. A prayer prayed by Jesus to his Father. Prayed for those disciples sitting there. And you say, gee, I wish he had prayed it for us. Hang on. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. This is a vital prayer for us today. Whoever was, whoever is now, whoever ever will be one of his blood-bought redeemed, this prayer is for you. And God is allowing us to listen in, and he has applications for us. And so he starts out in verse 1. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy son may also glorify thee. And then in verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus is not uh, a being that came on the scene for the first time um, 2,000 or so years ago. As the man Christ Jesus given a body to come to the cross and die, yes, but he's always been the second person of the Godhead, equal with the Father. And you can see here that his concern has a focus, the glory of God. 
The glory of God can be looked upon as the unveiling and the outshining of God's deity. And there are many, many ways in which God does that. Uh, he, he does it every day. The heavens declare the glory of God. And his handiwork is not shabby either. That's a bad paraphrase. But anyway, the doctrine of God's glory includes his greatness, his beauty, the perfection of all that he is. And the heavens declare the glory of God. God's glory is unique. It is a manifestation of himself. But still a concept that's a little bit hard to get on. And sometimes people uh, of different backgrounds have a way of getting down to the crux of the matter. Many years ago, uh, Wally Amos Criswell, none of you probably ever met him. He was a pastor at First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, long ago. Had the privilege of hearing him on several occasions. He was a great Bible teacher. He was invited to uh, a, a meeting up in Kentucky where a large number of black Baptists were present. And Criswell could only finally squeeze his way up to a window and kind of lean up and look in. And so that way he was able to listen to what was going on. Well, uh, as he looked at the pastor preaching right in the middle of the sermon, the pastor said, my brothers and sisters, where was the Lord before the world was? And all the congregation said, preacher, we don't know. Where was he? And after a while, he kept going through this and no one knew. And then the pastor pointed to Criswell and said, white man, where was the Lord? Before the world was made. Where was he? And Criswell said. I don't know. Where was he? And then the pastor asked again. My brethren and sisters. Where was the Lord? Before he was made. And he answered his own question. The Lord was in his glory. You say did he just make that up? I don't think so. Again verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He was in his glory. Years later, Criswell preached about this, and he said, the Lord was in his glory. That is to say, this is indescribable on our part, but that is the truth of God. There is an essential, inherent glory that belonged to Jesus from eternity to eternity. And that's what he was referring to when he prayed. Now, Father, glorify thou me with the glory, the outshining of thy radiance, the fullness of all who you are, that I had with thee before the world was. What's the great lesson here? The ultimate passion of Jesus in this earthly time here was to glorify his Father. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. And he did that in a number of ways, but ultimately, he's just steps, hours away from the cross as this is being prayed. Ultimately, Jesus would glorify the Father at the cross. 
No one can righteously ever accuse God the Father of not being loving. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Jesus on Calvary's cross. Here is the ultimate revelation of the glory of God, of God's mercy, of his love, of his forgiveness. What else should we see here in John chapter 17 verses 1 and 2? The deep problem of sin is not the deed of sin. It's not the harm that sin causes. But that God is not glorified. When we sin, the biggest problem is God is not glorified. In fact, he is greatly dishonored. The most amazing point of salvation is not to keep folks out of hell. But to bring a numberless multitude into a state whereby they glorify God as trophies of his mercy, love, and grace. Wow. Is that in our DNA of thinking about what it means to be a Christian? That God has saved me from the wretchedness of myself and sin and Satan and has now proclaimed that I exist and I'm saved for the purpose of glorifying God. Being a walking demonstration of his mercy, love, and grace. And so Jesus had a passion to glorify the Father. And Jesus in the born-again believer will have the same passion. You say, where would you find that? Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we often turn here, but we might not be focusing on the most important thing, which we'll try to focus on today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ, Shall I take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? You say, wait a minute. I've never been with a harlot, so I don't have to worry about that. Has your thought life ever gone into harlotry? You can look back over the years and there's been more than one man, more than one woman that you've lusted after. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two says he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is out without his body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his. Is glorifying God my supreme object and ambition. 
Is it not true that a lot of us have a lot of repenting to do this morning? Have you been using your body this week for the lust of the flesh? Have you been using your body, which is his, to express bad names, call people bad names, curse people, slander people? Make fun of people. The list is long. They said, no, 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 I would would never do that. Do you not remember the first, one of the first lessons that the Spirit of God taught Saul of Tarsus? Saul, Saul of Tarsus? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? All the evil that Saul of Tarsus had been doing to Christians on earth was being done to Jesus. Inasmuch as you've done these things or said these things to others, you've done it and said it to Jesus. We got some repenting to do. Now in his prayer... Jesus is basically praying, give me all that I need that I may glorify you, Father. And he can honestly say that he did. Verse 4 and 5, back in John 17, he continues to pray. I have glorified thee on the earth. That's not bragging. Can, can you not think of a day, and none of us have perfection. Jesus had perfection. I understand there's a great difference here. But when you're walking close to Jesus, have you not had a day or an evening when you were able to lie your head, lay your head down at night and say, Thank you, Jesus. I was able to walk with you today. S- serve you today. Use my members for your sake to glorify and not to speak evil. I have glorified thee on earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify thou me with, this, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world came. Jesus finished his assignment. Now we skip verse 2. We don't want to skip verse 2. Let's go back to verse 2. He's speaking about the glory of God in verse 1. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Verse 2, as thou, God the Father, hast given him, Jesus, power over all flesh that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as thou, God the Father, has given him Him being Jesus. As God the Father has given Jesus 
power over all flesh that Jesus should give eternal life to as many as God the Father has given him. That's glorious. Jesus created all life. He controls all life. He has the power and dominion over all life. That's another way of saying God is sovereign. Sovereign has to do with his authority, his control, his supremacy. As many have said, he does all he pleases, when he pleases, and with whom he pleases. If you want to argue with that, Job and Joseph and Daniel won't agree with you. And a lot of other people. He's sovereign. He does all of his good pleasure. None of his pleasure is bad pleasure. If you hear somebody who despises the sovereignty of God and they talk about God being capricious or just pull that out of the hat. God does nothing in that sort of fashion. He does his good pleasure. Oh God, you're sovereign. You do as you please. And when you please. And with whom you please. And so the Father has given Jesus power and authority over some flesh. You should better read, read that. No, my Bible says all flesh. Yeah, right. A pastor some years ago, Don Baker, said, God could have prohibited and controlled all the situations or people who are connected with my stress level. Do you realize he could have done that? And he may have done that more than you and I know. But since he did not on this occasion, on that occasion, it got through his screen. Now Don Baker makes a wonderful confession of faith. I can accept the fact that infinite wisdom and unchanging love conspired with almighty power to cause something or to allow something that ultimately is for my good and his glory. For God the Father has given to Jesus power over all flesh. What's he going to do with that power? What would you do if you had all power? Well, God the Father gave Jesus power for a specific purpose. Continuing there in the latter part of verse 2, that he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given the Son. Please don't rebel at that verse. Please don't try to water it away. It it doesn't need uh, interpretation. You don't need to know Greek. You just need to believe it. You don't need to say, I don't understand how that can be. You just accept what God says. That he, Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as the Father gives him. It does not say that Jesus will give eternal life to all flesh. He has power over all flesh. But he doesn't give eternal life to all flesh. But to as many as the Father gives him. When it comes to salvation... It's God's doing. He's the author and the finisher. Well, I think Paul said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
God the Father could have justly given all humans the justice that he gave the rebelling angels. They got justice. No mercy. No love. No forgiveness. Justice. And we all deserve justice. Ultimately, there's going to be a numberless multitude out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and people. Because, as we are told in John 17, the Father gave them to the Son. Christian, your salvation is a gracious gift from God. The word give in John chapter 17 is used in one form or another about 17 times in this prayer of Jesus. Seven times, Jesus states that believers are the Father's gift to the Son in verse 2, 6, 9, 11, 12, and 24. And again, in John 17, verse 20, he makes it plain that he's not just praying for those who are in hearing distance at that point. He's praying for those who shall believe. You've been given to the Son by the Father. I hope you never worry about significance again. You may be poor. You may be sick. You may have all kinds of problems. Uh, You may be a weak Christian. You may have just failed miserably. But if you're a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the blood that Jesus loved, you're just as justified today as you were yesterday, as we saw last week. You're still loved. You've been given to the Son by the Father. You say, well, I have a question. I want to know, how can I know if I am given by the Father to the Son? How can I know if I'm given by the Father to the Son? I want you to listen very carefully. No one in the New Testament ever asks that question. We like to ask theological questions because we don't like what's in front of us. And so we want to gear up, well, where did Cain get his wife or whoever? We have all these questions because we don't like what's obvious. What is obvious is that any and every Christian has been given by the Father to the Son. The response is not to give God a question. The response is to worship and be amazed. Because none deserve to be given. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. And God sent Philip to preach to him from that same passage, Jesus. Preach unto him, Jesus. And you know from the response of the eunuch that when he preached unto him Jesus, he preached upon upon him why he came, that he went to the cross, that he died, he arose, and the proper response is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to give uh, 
public expression in the waters of baptism of your repentance and faith. You say, how do you know that? Because when they came to water, the eunuch said, well, what hinders me from being baptized? Thou believest, thou mayest. So what do we preach to the lost? We preach the gospel. We don't spend time with foolish questions. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also we are saved. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture, and was seen of Cephas, and so forth, and uh, rose again. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Romans 1.16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, the Jew and the Greek. So what do we say to sinners? Repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you here today outside of Christ? There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you shall be saved. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. And so we'll ask another question. If you or anyone you know ever finds himself in hell, why will they be there? Well, because God didn't elect them. God didn't predestinate them. I'm not trying to make fun. But that is a slander. The Bible never even hints that anybody is in hell because they were not predestined or elected. People are in hell because they are sinners who rejected Christ. John 5.40 You will not come to me that you might have life. Not, I refused you coming to me. No. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to call them which were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Every fallen human being does something on the order of our first parents. They sin. First thing they do is come up with some religion. Fig leaf religion. Some effort to get right with God. Or cover their sin or make excuses for their sin. They didn't come up with the idea of a, a blood sacrifice. God did. The shepherd is the one who goes and seeks for sheep. Jesus gives eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Here's a deep concept of the difference between a lost person and a saved person. The saved person is known. Personally known. John 10, 14, I know my sheep. John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. 
the many multitudes led by countless numbers of preachers cast out demons, did wonderful works, preached in his name. He said, I never knew you. Never. This is serious business. Well, I believe in Jesus. I've always believed in Jesus. Does Jesus believe in you? People believed him. Well, he was not committed to them. He knew their hearts. The blood bought redeemed are those who are given by the Father to the Son. And those who, by the amazing grace of God, know the Lord Jesus Christ. They have fellowship with him. They have a definite relationship with him. And they have a definite attitude toward the word of God. Those who, know the word, those who know the Lord Jesus have a definite attitude toward the word of God. And that is also here in John 17 in the prayer of Jesus. Verse 6 and 8. I have manifested my name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have surely known that I've come from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Oh, this is amazing grace. And by the grace of God, you have a hunger for the word of God. And when by the amazing grace of God you open this book and it's not just a history lesson, it's not just some, I'm excited about prophecy, I want to know when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen. No, you want to have fellowship with Jesus. And you want to go out there into the world and honor him. You want to know what his word says so you can walk in a way that's pleasing to him. And you know when he speaks in his word, he's going to, sometimes he's going to say, you need to repent. You need to have a course adjustment here. You need to put this off. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. He's going to be speaking. It's a life lived in fellowship with him. And those who are given by the Father to the Son, those who know him, are people who are prayed for. And we have the model prayer. It's important to know how to pray. The best way to learn is to pray with the eyes open, reading scripture. Scripture prayers. Bible's full of them. But start with the model prayer. And so in John 17 verse 9. He says. I pray for them. Talking about his disciples. I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. He said I don't like that verse. Forget what you and I don't like. Let's just accept what God says. I'm not going to apply that and say, I would never walk up to someone and say, God has told me not to pray for you, you heathen. No. You don't know where you are in the steps that God may be using of planting and watering, and one day God's going to give the increase. Leave God's things with God. 
And all this is saying is that we're knowing, we know that there is a time and a place here. And Jesus says that for the world. Well, we've got to go out there. Jesus is trying to save the world. And if we don't do this and don't do this, uh, the world's going to go to hell. The world's already on the road to hell. And yes, we have a responsibility to live and to proclaim the gospel. And God is saving people, and he will until he comes back. But his goal is not to save the world. I don't want to disappoint you, but his goal is not to make America great again. Oh, we love that. We'd like to have America great. That's not his agenda. His agenda is a numberless multitude out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and people. Even among those nations that we call our enemies. His church is there. So those who know Jesus Christ are prayed for. And those who know Jesus Christ are in unity. Verse 21. That they may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee. That they may be one in us. And that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. There's a whole big movement to have a one world church. And one of the... They love this verse taken out of context. And you've got to forget all about your major doctrines. And let's all come together and let's agree on some basics. And because there's a pagan world out there, and we've got to all be together. We've, we've, we've got to have some unity here. Christian unity is not something to be strived for. In the sense that we don't have it and we've got to go get it. There is unity in every person who's redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they are baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, and we are members one of another. We may have some dysfunctions, we may have problems, we may have sicknesses, but we have unity in Christ. Christ is the head. And you don't have to uh, deny any doctrine to get there. And I'm going to shock somebody to death. There's nobody in my lifetime who did more to try to, to try to bring unity between all evangelicals and Roman Catholicism than Billy Graham. All you have to do is look at history. He started in the 50s. I didn't know this. All you have to do is read what he said and, and look at what he did. He was double-minded. And in the latter days, he was very plain about the things he said, about not even needing to be a Christian to be in heaven. And there are many big-time preachers today. They sat at his feet, they learned of him, and they're taking up his trumpet. And if you say anything uh, exposing this, you've committed heresy because you've spoken against an icon. I'm not speaking against him. I'm speaking against the false teaching. As Ephesians 4, 3 says, we are to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit. But we're not looking for unity. We have it in Christ. 
And then, as you get toward the end in verse 18 and 20, you find that the same in the same prayer, where in verse 2, the Father has given Jesus power over all flesh, that Jesus should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him, Jesus also reveals in verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which shall believe on me through their word. People are believe, have since the day Jesus went back to heaven, and now and until Jesus returns, there are people believing because they're passing the torch. And that's where we come in. You say, well, if God has given all these people to Jesus, and we don't need to evangelize. You, you don't even get a hint of that from reading scripture. You get that from people who don't like the sovereignty of God. The Bible never hints that there's no place for evangelism. It tells us exactly that we are to be evangelistic, that we are to go about and to live the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. Down through the centuries, folk come to Christ through the word of those who are already saved. We are to go forth into our world. There are people out there who will be saved. You say, I don't know which ones. Don't worry about it. God knows. He says, take the gospel to everybody. We're to plant water. God gives the increase. And he uses two things. It's a two-pronged. It's not one or the other. He uses our lives and our lips. God's witness through us to a lost world is visual and verbal. Visual. John 13. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And in John 17, 21... They'll know through their word, through your word. Take a gospel track. Tell somebody about Jesus. Live the gospel before them. What an incredible privilege. Why would we not want to do that? I'll tell you what has happened. We have too many people in the pulpits and the pews who are not astounded at grace they're not astounded at God's mercy their concept of salvation is too man centered instead of God centered this chapter this prayer of Jesus leaves us to worship leaves us to be astounded into a world that deserved no mercy no grace no love into a world that deserved nothing different from than what the fallen angels got God so loved the world. He gave his son. And when he gave his son. He said son. I'm giving you a people. I'm, I'm designed. I've given you power over all flesh. That. You should give eternal life. To as many as 
I, the Father, have given you. There's a wideness in God's mercy. We have an inescapable responsibility to make Christ visible by radiating supernatural love. We have an inescapable responsibility to verbalize. Come see a man who told me all I ever did. Come see Jesus who forgave me of my sin. Jesus went to the cross, paid the sin debt for sinners. The only problem that would knock you out that I can see in the scriptures if you're not a sinner. If you're good, I'm sorry, can't help you. But if you're a sinner, Jesus came for sinners. Repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, cry out to him. All who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. Today we need to go forth with a new passion of glorifying God is our chief end. In everything we do, does this glorify God? I'm fixing to punch this button. I'm fixing to click here, click here. Will this glorify God? These words are about to come out of my mouth. I'm angry. And words are just pressing to come out. To give you a piece of my mind. And the Holy Spirit says, will this glorify God? And you know the answer. And so you put to death your flesh. You deny your flesh. You take up your cross. You take up your identification with Christ and follow Jesus. Have you been angry this week? Have you called Jesus bad names? No, I didn't call Jesus bad name. You call some fellow person a bad name. Whatever you've done to others, you've done to me. Did you lust? Did you feed the flesh? Read up with greed? The list is long. Oh, how glorious it is to have before us this morning the sacred scene of the of the Lord's Prayer. God knows what he's speaking to my heart and yours. Let's say yes to it. Our Father, we thank you for opening the curtains to this sacred moment and holding it for us. Now 2,000 years later, and we are not in an inferior position to those who literally heard with their physical ears this prayer from the lips of Jesus. Because Jesus is now in heaven praying for us and he has sent the Holy Spirit to be our master teacher and to cause this prayer to leap off the pages and to get into our bloodstream to fill us with joy and hope to bring us to deep conviction to bring us to a place of deep repentance to bring us to a place of crying out Lord God be merciful to me a sinner we bless you Lord Jesus we bless you Holy Spirit we bless you God the Father the one the true and the living God you do all things well have your way in our hearts and for this we pray in Jesus name Amen